Hello and welcome to Downturn Survival Guide, the new podcast mini-series brought to you by Sifted and EQT Ventures. I'm Anissa Osman-Britton, Startup Life reporter here at Sifted, and this week I'm joined by Alistair Mitchell, partner at EQT Ventures, an early-stage tech VC focusing on European startups, and Parry Singh, who is the CEO of the GitHub for Engineering, Flow Engineering. It is one of EQT's portfolio companies. Over the next three weeks, we'll be exploring some of what European startups need to know about surviving in a downturn. This week, we're kicking off with what we can learn from the dot-com crash and the 2007-2008 financial crisis, events that appear to have repeated themselves with the dramatic fall of startup bank Silicon Valley Bank and the hangover of the economic downturn. We'll be asking how different the situation is now than the dot-com crash and the 2007-2008 crisis, how the funding environment has shifted and what there is still to be optimistic about. Now partner at EQT Ventures, Alistair is the former founder of Huddle, a file sharing and collaboration startup. CEO between 2006 and 2015, he led his company through the 2008 financial crisis and was also a founder during the dot-com crash. Having weathered two downturns in his own startup days, Ali now provides founders, including Parry, with the support they need to navigate today's uncertainties. Let's whiz through what these events were and how they affected tech. The dot-com bubble was a rapid rise in US tech valuations, fueled by investments in internet-based companies during the late 90s. The value of markets grew exponentially during this period, but things started to change in the year 2000, and the bubble burst. Ali, how and why did this bubble actually burst? The reasons behind it are eerily familiar. You had new technology, in this case a breakthrough technology, the internet, that was poorly understood but massively hyped. You had an era before it of very cheap money, low interest rates. You had a lot of capital flowing and a lot of investment appetite because stocks in other parts of the market weren't growing. That all led to basically a lot of speculation and excitement and growth that frankly made the last 10 years look small. I mean, these were properly exponential growths. And more importantly, there were companies that no one understood how they were going to be valued and make money, but everyone was valuing them on the basis of eyeballs or views, which everyone thought could be monetized in the future, all of which is a pretty classic setup for a dot-com crash. There were a series of accounting scandals. There was increasing questions about the financial viability, and a bunch of businesses weren't able to get funded because they were burning a lot of money. And frankly, just the market ran out of money for these at one point. And then you had 9-11. And the combination of all of those things tripping up over each other caused there basically to be a rapid unraveling. And once things start going badly, things start going badly very, very fast. Literally overnight, businesses that have been worth billions were worth nothing. What was that like to be in business at that time? Pretty much what it feels like right now, actually, if you're a founder. Um, money is hard to come by. Valuations are a lot lower. It's actually harder in actual fact. I mean, this was a proper bubble, almost like, a, you know, if you go right back in history, like the Amsterdam tulip bubble or, you know, a proper speculative bubble with literally no money around. How we feel now is probably more similar to how it felt when I was in 2007, 2009 in the great financial crisis, in that this is a prolonged two to three year downturn. But there are startups that are making money. This is a market. People are being funded. After the dot-com crisis, literally nothing got funded. So you've mentioned that financial crash there. And that, a bit unlike the 2000 dot-com crash, 
didn't actually start in tech, right? It was kind of caused by years-long binges on cheap credit and Wall Street was brought to its knees. Loads of ordinary people lost their jobs, life savings and homes. Some of us have seen the film around that, The Big Short. What was different about the dot-com bubble from that first bubble that you experienced? The clue is in the name. One was caused by the dot-com bubble bursting. The second one was less of a bubble, but more of a financial crash and downturn that I feel is quite similar to this. And that lasted two or three years, which then, as you said, in the big short came crashing down. I was actually in New York on the day of the Lehman Brothers crash. And remember what it was like. It was eerie. And my wife was working for Lehman Brothers at the time, albeit for a consultant. More importantly, I was running a startup and we were trying to about to go out to raise our Series B literally as it crashed and everything stopped. So it felt very much like for a lot of startups that are going out to fund right now. And the same things happened. Investors had to step into their better companies to bridge them to support them. And it looked like a two or three year downturn where funding was hard. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Albeit this one was caused for not dissimilar reasons, but also does affect tech probably more than the 2007 to 2009, which affected everything. So it sounds a bit Gloomy. Were there any winners from both of these bubbles that we can look to for inspiration for what we're all going through right now? The winners are all around us. I mean, the biggest internet companies and some of the biggest companies that we know today were all formed in those two periods. They're the tools, the companies, the things we use every day. And that's exactly what's going to happen in this one. And there's a couple of big reasons for that. First of all, if you look at the actual technologies, the, the businesses that were being started in 2000, those business models are still here today. But people understand how to value them in their real business so they make real money. But dot-com shopping, online shopping, online magazines, delivery products, these are all things that we use every day. They were just ahead of their time and people didn't understand how to value them and grow them. So the actual technologies weren't wrong. It was the timing of the businesses and how they were funded and how they were understood and how they were grown. That shows you that when a great product comes to market, it's a great product. It will be there. What matters is being able to sustain them and grow them. The second thing that happens in a crash is that if it's a really bad one, like 2007, like now, rather than a short-term blip, there's no reason just to go and create something that was making a load of money, like a rising tides lift or ships, basically build a copycat business. You go and try and solve a very big fundamental problem because the copycat businesses aren't making any money, like Perry is doing, solving a massive fundamental problem. And so people swing for the fences. The phrase go big or go home you know, is, occurs in these periods because you've got nothing to lose. So why not go and find the biggest problem and go and set out because you know you're going to have time to do it. The third thing that happens, if you're doing that, because it's not an easy business, there's no free money, you have to fight it out, you have to really focus on your customers, you have to get your pricing and you go to market and your product excellent, then you basically build a better business because you can't rely on free money. You have to rely on the market, on great product market fit. So it breeds a lean business and an efficient business at the same time as a really big idea. And then as the market comes back, and all the money starts flowing again, you're in a great position to grow. So you get the double effect of a better business that then becomes really well funded when times become better. That combination of all those things coincides with some amazing breakthrough technologies, whether it's the internet or AI now or climate tech and so on, that then funds 20-year cycles. And aside from the financial crisis, this is a 20-year moment because we are really 20 years from the last proper sort of tech bubble and new technologies. And what we're seeing now are technologies that people are saying are kind of akin to the internet when it first started, whether that's the new hardware hybrid type businesses that Parry serves or in climate and deep tech or in AI. I think that's such great context and adds some optimism to this conversation that we're having. And I want to come back to those topics, especially on that focus on profitability that we're again seeing now. But I want to bring Parry in here. Hi, Parry. Hey, how's it going? 
Good. I'm so glad you're able to come and chat to us about this topic. Parry, what's the story behind Flow Engineering? And what was it like to found a company in the booming times of 2017? 2017 was a wildly different time. And there was a lot more room for experimentation, I think, than there is today. When we started the company, honestly, I was a first-time founder. I didn't know what I was doing. We knew there was this massive hairball of a problem that we had to go solve. And then we had no idea as to how we were going to go do that. I'm a mechanical engineer by training. I've been designing hardware for the last five years. And when I went into the hardware industry as an engineer, I was really heartbroken because the tools in the industry that engineers were forced to use were actively slowing them down. Tools are meant to help you do more, help you go faster. The tools that we had in our industry were built by IBM. It hadn't changed in the last 30 or 40 years. And it was really, really hindering engineers' ability to go faster, especially today. It was a bit of a shock horror because we'd seen what really great software tooling could look like in the software engineering industry. Today in the software industry, developers have things like GitHub. We have branching and forking. We have CICD. We have unit and integration testing. And if you ripped any of that stuff out from a modern software engineering team, the entire thing would crumble. And that crumbling state looked a lot similar to what current hardware engineering looks like today. So we went out to go solve that problem. Now, when we went out to solve that problem, we didn't know what we would do. So we started a company called The Rocket Company. And for the first year, we bootstrapped a rocket engine design consultancy. And we built this as an internal tool for ourselves to be able to go much faster. So we could get a new customer requirement in, would plug those requirements into a software, would hit generate, and it would compile us a design for a rocket engine that would go sell really quickly. Now, during our raise, we went from a rocket engine design consultancy that was bootstrapped to realizing with investors that the real play here was the software tool play. And we pivoted the business from a hardware business to a software business while raising our first million. I don't think we'd ever get away with that today. <laughs> we were incredibly rigorous and disciplined, and we knew the type of business we wanted to go build at the start and at the end. But I remember getting an email from one of our first angel investors, who was a founder himself, with a big question mark, saying, this isn't the business I invested in. So we apologized profusely. We took him out for a coffee. We offered his money back. And luckily, he'd invested for the team anyway. But yeah, as I say, like 2017, a lot more room for experimentation. Today, 2023, it's really focused. You almost build a business plan like you did 20 years ago, and you ruthlessly go and execute on that one business plan. So there's probably something lost in that, but I think a lot of companies will be better as a result. So when did you notice things start to change? We've obviously had this first half of 2022 that was, well, kind of rocked the world of tech, didn't it? We had Russia's invasion of Ukraine, rising inflation, poor public market performance. European tech got hit quite hard. What did you notice? What did the downturn feel like to you in comparison to 2017 and those mini cycles, as you mentioned, in between? Well, the first thing I'll say here is that the assumptions you go in with when you raise your first round of funding are sort of the assumptions you calibrate to and the expectations you set out for the next 10 or 15 years. And those have certainly changed. But what I'll also say is the most sophisticated investors and certainly the most sophisticated founders had their eye on the ball here. A certain number of people were, were ringing the alarm bells in the early ML era and then in the early crypto era. And then going into 2020 with COVID, we were like, this probably won't last forever. And I think what we saw happen is maybe all three of those sort of collapse at the same time. It's a certainly an interesting time. But fundamentally, I think what I always come back to is the 20-year game, which is there are a number of companies that will build a product raise some VC cash, hire a team and get acquired in the next three years. And a number of those companies are going to find it significantly harder to do business as usual 
because the cash isn't there for that and the appetite isn't there for that, both from the investor point of view and the talent point of view. But I think the really foundational companies, the companies that will go on to be the Fortune 100 companies and the companies that really change how industries work, those companies are operating as normal because it's not going to happen in the three years. It's not going to happen in the five years. It will just start to happen in the 10 years. And in the 20 years, that's when things are really going to change. Perry, as a founder, I wanted your view on Silicon Valley bank crashing. It's different to all the banks going down, but how did this feel to you as a founder? What did this signal to you and the market? I don't think anyone called SVB. (laughs) I think a lot of people called the general state of the market, but I think SVB was really an edge case. It felt terrible. And it felt terrible because there are a certain number of things that you assume that no longer hold true. When you're in a big corporate and a massive company and there's a legacy player, it's all about managing risk. I think startups are the opposite. It's not really about managing risk. All your risk is in one bucket, and that bucket is about getting to product market fit. And you sort of say, I'm going to take a lot of risk in other areas because they don't really matter. There might be 2% risk in my team and 5% risk over here and 3% risk there. But there's a 50% risk that I don't really find product market fit in the way that I need to. So in the back of your head as a founder, you always have these risks and you're always managing them. And at the very, very, very bottom of those risks are your bank will collapse (laughs) and it might have a 0.001% and you basically ignore it. You go, there's absolutely no way that's going to happen. And that fundamental bit of infrastructure is pulled away. Suddenly you realize you might have blind spots and the infrastructure you're building your entire business on, whether that be legal, financial, or cloud compute infra, there might be fundamental risks around. And two, you need to be able to keep the business driving at the same pace when you're in wartime and you need to move money around. So certainly I know that a lot of founders have just recovered from SVB now, sort of three, four weeks after it happening. But it feels terrible. At the fundamental sense though, at the core it all comes back to, am I building a really great product? And do I have a really great team culture around me to be able to scale this to to go transform something in the 10 to 20 year timeframe? And anything that takes away from focus on that is going to be a mistake. So we've talked about things that have happened. We've gone through some highs and some lows when it comes to the tech market. But there's a lot that we can learn from previous crises and your experiences. Alistair, how different is the situation now through this economic downturn than both the crises that you have experienced? It's actually not that different. And what that means is it should give hope, right? For a lot of founders and a lot of VCs, actually, they hadn't lived through any of this before. This is now unfortunate because it shows how old I am. I've lived through three of them. This is the third. And I don't really count COVID as a full-blown one because everything came back so fast and then the world carried on. This is different. This is a two to three year sustained period of economic downturn and suppressed activity, whether that's people buying, suppressed lending and valuation and investing that will inevitably lead to a growth period again that will last you know, 10 to 20 years. I think the interesting thing, about I think this is more like the dot-com bubble. It's very different in terms of what happened, but the combination of new technologies that are coming about now, this is this 20-year moment I talk about. And so I think this is going to be a 20-year cycle. There might be a, another financial crisis in the middle of it or something else that happens or heaven forbid, another pandemic. And certainly we hope not any more wars. But in terms of the technology cycle, I think this is 20 years and that is hugely exciting. And if you think about some of the amazing companies that were formed in the first one, that's what you're going to see now. Do you have your eye on any particular type of companies that you think will come out of this downturn? AI has obviously taken over the news completely. And it is 
truly remarkable what that is facilitating. But it's going to ultimately be, I think, more of a feature than a product. I mean, it's going to invade everything, right? Everything we do, every tool, every bit of software is going to be rewritten. That's not to underestimate the profoundity of the transformation, which it is going to be profound. But it's not a category, if that makes sense. It is an enabling technology. And then there will be huge enabling platforms coming out of it, just like Google. But I think the even more existential one is how it's then applied to the climate crisis, to energy, to these hybrid startups that are exactly what Paris is going off, which is why it's such an exciting time to be building what Paris is building, which is a new type of startup, which we haven't seen before, or, or rather we did, but 40 years ago, when the first bits of Silicon Valley came out, when people were building proper computers. Startups now are dealing with new types of materials, dealing with the energy transformation. And that's a mixture of software, data, AI, hardware, deep science, putting it all together. These founders of today look very different from a pure software founder. They're going to require different funding journeys, different technologies. And that, I think, is hugely exciting. And what about the bet on Europe? We're hearing this time that we think that European founders are more prepared for this downturn, more resilient to it. Where do you kind of stand on that opinion? 20 years since my first startups, I've been saying now is the time for Europe. So, you know, it's a bit like the iPhone moment, right? But I think if you look back over the last 10 years, it has been a, a very, very dramatic increase. So, you know, for several years, that was unprecedented. The European, if you include the UK and all wider Europe, had startup valuations and, and exits that were greater than the US for the first time ever. You've now got some of the biggest businesses in the world. But, you know, before a two to 600 million exit was amazing for Europe. Now you've got 60 billion valuation businesses coming out of Europe in some cases before, admittedly, the valuation, but let's call them 20 to 30 billion, right? That's huge now. So we are seeing a change. Europe is still behind. And the biggest shift that I, th I hope will happen is that Europe has always been known for building great deep tech, whether you call it hardware, frontier tech, science, because of our strength in STEM, because of the amazing technical universities, the number percentage of top 10 universities, research universities that are in, in Europe generally, and I mean the wider Europe, but have been terrible at selling and marketing it. So I hope that this is now, because of the era we're about to enter over the next 20 years, that I hope that's going to be the big change. And I know there are lots of movements afoot, whether it's individual European ones, whether it is things like the new NATO fund that was focused on this. There's a lot of money and real effort to make this opportunity real. And what's interesting but at the same time, very tragic is that having Ukraine on, on our doorstep, which is a very real European problem, really exacerbates that because everyone feels it. If you're in many European countries, you are literally right next to a war zone. Even if you're not that close to a war zone in the UK, you're feeling your energy prices. Everyone is accelerating their transition away from traditional energy sources in a way that perhaps the US isn't. And then there is also a political consensus around climate and energy and new materials that there isn't in the US, which is very politicized. So I hope that all those things, and then more importantly, amazing founders like Parry, can help us to come out of this in Europe hugely successfully. And certainly, if we think about tech as a category, most people think software. And that's primarily been driven by the last 10, 15 years of tech businesses being software businesses. But I think what Ali touched on a second ago is the very early days of Silicon Valley were actually businesses around hardware around computers, around physical things. We had era one of Silicon Valley, which I sort of think of as the computing era, the IBM, the Apple era, the Intel era. We had era two of Silicon Valley, which was really the software era, which is the era that we're all familiar with today. But I think what we're going into is era three. And this era, as Ali says, looks very, very different to the previous two eras. The first thing is there's a bunch of hardware in the mix. Number two is there's a bunch of AI in the mix. And these sorts of companies, we're still working out how to build. 
and we're still working out the core fundamental bits of technology around. And when you think of Europe holistically, and you think of the universities here, and you think of the manufacturing base and the history in that, I think it's really well positioned to have a massive impact, at least with the technology base and the investor base. Now, will that come to fruition? Yet to see. But I think it's a really exciting time because we still are working out what a great hardware tech-backed business looks like. And we're still working out what AI companies look like. We're seeing a lot of over-promising when it comes to things like AI at the moment. And we've talked about this earlier on, but some of the crises we've spoken about can be attributed to companies over-promising and being overfunded. How do you remain enthusiastic and optimistic, but stay realistic about what you are building? There's three sub-questions that I read in that. Question one is like, how do you still raise money uh, when all the VCs are, are terrified about what might happen? Question two is how do you bring your current investors that may have invested with certain assumptions in and manage those? And then question three, which is arguably the most important question is, as a founder and as someone that's building something really, really difficult, how do you manage your own expectations and your own ambitions with this? And I sort of always come back to the time frame in which we operate. From a one-year time frame, it may be a difficult time to go raise a Series A. Fewer companies will be backed and they will be backed with a lot more rigor and a deeper look into the finances of the business. But from a five-year, a 10-year, a 15- a 20-year point of view, nothing really changes. We came into tech when growth and the big SoftBank era was happening. And we couldn't really be part of that because we were too early, we were too small. Certainly, I think what Ali is saying is we'll build a better, more focused, more disciplined business now that will grow faster as a result of that discipline. And then five years from now, maybe things are better. And maybe there's a lot more money to go into growth because things have stabilized. Once we're in that boat, we're going to have the mix of really, really smart businesses built by founding teams that have seen the weather and can see how bad things go, but also have the money behind them to be able to have a really transformative impact on the industry. I just think it's a net positive. You'll, you'll have a wave of mercenary-like founders that raised their Series A on a $500 million valuation that have nothing to show for it. And a bunch of those companies are going to die. And will tech be better off? We'll see. But there's a bunch of really fundamentally great companies that are building great products that really, really matter and great teams behind those great products that are going to flourish in the 5, 10, 15, 20 year time frame. Perry, you mentioned there something that Ali, I would love your opinion on and we talked about at the beginning, which is companies pivoting to profitability, being a bit more bootstrapped, trying to raise less money or there is less money to raise. What is your advice in pivoting to profitability in this time? Is that the best advice right now? And what are you seeing your portfolio experience in this period? Most early stage startups cannot pivot to profitability. It's an impossibility because a lot of them, well, you could, but you would end up with such a small business that you wouldn't grow at all. Some late stage businesses are able to do that. And I think that's very important. If you're a late stage business, the IPO market is basically closed and you need to be able to survive through it. But for an early stage business, it's a really difficult juggling act. If you cut too much, you'll just stop growing. And at the end of the day, the whole point of building a startup is building something from nothing. But I think what it forces you is to focus what money you have on A, lasting as long as possible, working with great investors who will continue to support you, and focus all of that money on the most essential things, which is dialed in product market fit, and then efficient unit economics, and just making that money last as long as possible and really dissecting every single dollar, pound, euro that you've got. And then hopefully having some supporters that will back you. One of the fundamental beliefs that we have is that the investors I had through 2007, 2009, 
that leaned in and helped me and, and worked with me and gave were able to extend a bridge. They were the ones I would always work with again, come, you know, no questions asked because they were supportive of us through our hardest times. We had to do some pretty crazy things. Some of my team went out and almost got second jobs and then took the money from, from basically out there doing stuff to then put it back into the company, which is just insane if you think what team members did. So it really brings people together and creates an incredible bond to build a business when times get really hard. I don't think we're there yet, but I think some companies will get there. But if you survive it, you're going to come out of it even stronger, as the phrase goes. Ali, maybe you can remain optimistic because you've seen previous crises. There are a lot of young founders who are just going through this for the first time. What do you advise them to do in terms of looking for advice, apart from listening to the next two episodes of this podcast? What's your top tips? Go and find people who've been through it before. Look at every single dollar, pound, euro that you've got and use it for only the most important things. Make some really hard decisions. There are no sacred cows in this. Don't have anything where you think you have to protect it. And as long as you don't die, the, you know, the classic phrase is startups only go bust for one reason, and that's they run out of money. Right? That sounds like a ridiculously obvious statement, but there's so, so much incredible truth in that. Money buys time. Time is what you need to keep on iterating to build your business, to get to iterate, to find product market fit, to find customers. So you just need time, which means having the most money or the most time with the money you have. Parry, do you relate to that in terms of where you are as a founder? Totally. Because when I wake up in the morning, I don't think about raising money because I have a business to build. And that business relies on me building a really great product and, and working out the exact market and the exact niche and the exact sales process and the exact things around that. I think the word here is really simple. It's discipline. We've got to remain disciplined. Like a seed stage company can't pivot to profitability. That doesn't exist. But we can definitely focus on building a really great, sustainable, long-term business. That's all that's really going to matter. When we go out and raise money, we will probably raise money on worse terms than we would have a year ago. That's just a fundamental reality. And we will have fewer bets because of that. But I think one thing you see a lot is that when companies get too much money and spend too much, it becomes really easy for you to lose that focus and lose that discipline. And given you are not stuck, given you've got enough cash to be able to last the next 12 months, everything will be all right. Some people are saying or they think that financial crises even out the market and they kind of rebalance the tech ecosystem, keeping it humble, so to speak. Do you both agree with this? Yeah, it's like a forest fire, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like there's there's the correct ones and the incorrect ones. If SBVB had collapsed and had taken out a third of the market for no reason, that would have been an incorrect one. And I think everyone in the market would have said, this is absolutely shouldn't be on. But I think what you've seen is the market go pretty wild. And as a result, it become more expensive to build the same quality of business. And as evaluations come down, things normalize and sort of come back to common sense land, which is nice. So the market will rebalance, but it won't rebalance in a negative way. It'll rebalance in a things make sense again way. Yeah. And if you're, if you are disciplined and you have great investors and you're building a good product and you get to product market fit, suddenly your competition has gone away. So look, it's ruthless, right? It's brutal, but that's what business is. The noise has gone away. You're left with great investors, great founders and the best businesses. There's the line and the noise. The noise is getting smaller and smaller and the line's getting more and more important. That's all we have time for. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find all of our coverage on sifted.eu. If you want to hear more from me, you can sign up to the Startup Life newsletter on the Sifted website. 
Thank you to EQT Ventures for sponsoring this podcast series. EQT Ventures is a diverse team of 40 plus ex-founders and operators and an AI bot. And with the backing of EQT, one of the world's largest tech investors, they provide radical support and big picture early stage investments to founders that give their groundbreaking ideas a fast track to scale.